Hey, and welcome back to another episode of Restless, the podcast. You know, we're excited to have you back, and we have a really powerful story that we want to draw you into tonight. If you have any interest in contacting us from listening to the stories of what you've heard already, or perhaps even being called to share your own story, you can do that by emailing us at info at restlesspodcast.com or go to our website at restlesspodcast.com and look us up. Leave us some information about yourself and we would be overjoyed to get back with you and hear your story. Today we are sitting down with a friend of ours, Jim. Jim is 57. He is self-employed. Much like Jesus himself, you could describe Jim as a tecton, a worker of hard material, specifically in this 21st century, concrete and all things related to concrete. He is a father of two. He is, in his own words, married to a wonderful wife and the grandfather of five. He loves the outdoors and really, really loves concrete. But Jim actually has quite the story. It's a story of overcoming abuse and very acute and distinct suffering that many of us will be lucky to never know anything like. But Jim is here to tell his story and be a voice for those who have suffered and offer hope. You know, Jim is a guy that that I've known for a couple years, and you can see his heart in his eyes and the sincerity of the kind of man that he is and, and the struggles that he's had over the years, particularly in physical abuse, but which led to even substance abuse to account for those early years. And I think you're really going to hear the sincerity and the love in Jim's voice, but also the pain. Jim does an incredible job working with concrete, and some of the amazing products he puts out is unbelievable. But what God has done in his life is incredible as well. And tonight, Jim, would you please take us on your journey? All right. Well, thank you for that. And um, glad to be here. It's a pretty cool invite. And um, I'm trying to figure out where to begin. It begins a long, long time ago from time of my early childhood that, that I can remember the most. I don't remember all of it, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of suppression in, in that from the things that have happened, but we can start back as far as I can remember. I grew up in a, in a home of chaos. Um, I had an abusive father. I had a submissive mom, a younger sister, and it seemed like there was always a lot of anger and arguments and fighting and stuff like that. That was my, you know, that's the most recollection of my childhood. It was that kind of things going on in the household. So it was pretty chaotic for a little kid to grow up wondering where he fits in on all that. You know what I mean? So I can remember years where my dad was a very active man and he was always helping people. You know, he's always, he was a very good mechanic. He was always hanging around a bunch of guys building hot rods and racing at the track. I can remember him taking us all in the car and going to the racetrack. We'd sit up in the grandstands, and him and his buddies would drag race all night. We'd jump back in the car and go home. 
and he introduced me to that kind of stuff a long time ago when I was a real little kid, and it, it kind of like get in, got into my blood where even today I'm still a hot rodder. But he had an accident early in his life, in his early 30s, on a job to where he had an issue with his neck that involved or evolved into total disability at an early age of maybe like 32. So his super active life of doing all kinds of things kind of like ended, like snap your fingers and it was all over. And I can remember him getting into alcohol really bad at that point because he was always at home. And my mom always worked. You know, she was basically like the breadwinner when I was a real little kid. So there was always arguments. And I'm, I'm sure it, you know, was from his resentment of being in the position that he's in, of not being able to so-called take care of your family or do things like he always did. So I could just remember all the fighting about money and all the fighting about this, that, and the other. And it was very abusive where my mom and dad physically fought you know, to the point where I had to stand around and watch all this happening. And I got a lot of bad memories about that kind of stuff. You know, and it, today, well, it's had a big impact on my whole life throughout my life with the relationship of my dad, with my relationship with my mom. And even today, I don't have the relationship with my dad that I always would want, you know, as any child would want. And I'm thankful for the relationship that I have with my Heavenly Father. But with that being said, I can remember even myself being abused. Anything that I did wrong was magnified to the point where I felt like I was a criminal at four and five years old and got, and got the, the treatment of one with the whippings and the beatings and, I mean, debilitating beatings. Something that, you know, in my opinion, no human being should suffer through in, in, you know, period. It was just horrible. And I had a lot of hatred for my dad when, with those things. So when it came to me being mischief or whatever, as a child, like any child is, I got to know that lying would maybe get me out of trouble. So I became very good at lying, which is not really a good thing, but it's just something that I developed. Those are coping skills that I developed you know, to try to keep myself from being beat. Mm -hmm. So then when I got found out that I was lying, ugh, the beatings were even worse. So now, I'm, you know, you're confused as a child as to whether I tell the truth, whether I tell a lie, I'm going to get beat no matter what, right? So, you know, those types of things molded me into like self-preservation. The only thing I could think about was taking care of me and sometimes my little sister. And I got a lot of that stuff where I took what my little sister was going to get because I would just get in the way, basically. You know what I mean? So those are some pretty tough memories. Um, and then growing up, I was always in trouble at school. I can remember getting suspended in the first grade in elementary school. I got suspended in the fourth grade in elementary school. I got suspended in middle school. I got suspended in every single year of high school. I'm not sure why, but mm. it was just probably crying out for attention, you know, because I wasn't getting it at home. I wasn't getting it, you know, where I wanted it. And I didn't have that relationship with my dad to be able to go out and do things like any normal kid would. I never got to do any kind of extracurricular activities from school, like playing sports or any of that kind of stuff. I was never allowed to do any of that. 
So those were tough times, you know, and well, first of all, we probably didn't have the money in the first place. You know, we were what they called poor white trash back in the day. I can remember not even having a bathroom in the house until I got to high school. Hmm. You know, we had, uh, <laughs> we were limited to cold running water and uh, that was it. If you wanted to, needed to go to the bathroom, it was about, I don't know, 75 yards out back behind a couple of the sheds around the property, the outhouse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And if you need, when you needed to take a bath, you put a pot under the sink and you filled it up. Then you walked over to the stove in the kitchen, you stuck it on the burner, you heated it up, and you stood there and you took your bath and you dumped it down the drain. And that was it. And you're talking the 1970s, right? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, wow. Yeah. My grandparents down in Eldersburg, where we used, you know, where they used to live, they didn't even have running water in the house. And my, you know, I remember going down to the spring house and dipping water and bringing it to the house. Mm. So that's how we grew up. You know, we grew up. As farmers, you uh, you planted a big garden, you harvested all the garden, you canned the garden, you know, and you had provisions throughout the year for your own self. So that's what you did when you didn't have the money to go to the store all the time. You worked. So that's what I did as a young child, and most of my, you know, childhood was done doing that. Through the summers, that's all I got to do was work. I didn't get to play. I remember working gardens at my grandparents' house, you know, and that was all you did all summer. And your And your pay was the food on the table. <laughs> you know, you didn't get an allowance. You didn't get stuff like that like kids do today. And, but it shapes you and molds you into a work ethic like no other, you know, and, and I still have that same mm. type of work ethic today where I get up and I look forward to going to work, you know, and I look forward to doing things and what my hands produce. You know, God's blessed me big with being able to do things like that. But anyway, growing up was tough. Watching my mom suffer through a lot of that stuff was tough. Um, I can remember my dad's drinking was really, really, really bad. Heck, I can remember, you know, days just riding around in a car with him and I'd be sitting in the front seat, no seat belts, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, he'd say, give me that bottle boy. And I'd reach over in the glove box, pull his bottle out, pop the cap for him, hand it to him. He'd give it back to me and I'd put it away. And that's, that was, that was some, that was to me was cool. Cause I got to spend time with my dad, but yeah. in the eyes of most people, that's like, what are you thinking? Right. You know, and today I would do the same thing. What am, What are you thinking? Mm-hmm. But, but that's what it was back then. You know what I mean? And then, so those were some cool things that I did that I thought were cool with my dad. And he then he, we would be driving down the road, and he would just lean back, and he'd give me the wheel, and I would drive the car as a little kid. Now you you know, even I just sit up on his hip, but I would drive. I mean, and, that's kind of cool. Actually. I thought it was really cool. Yeah. You know, here I'm driving. I'm eight, ten years old. Yeah. You know, all the time I got to do mm-hmm. that, but. Anyway, so life moving forward, all that kind of stuff going on in home, all the pain, all the all the feelings of um, no self-worth, mm. you know what I mean? Living in a house like that and all that kind of chaos, I had no self-worth. I always thought I was in the way. I never felt like I was, um, I belonged. I thought I was like, and my dad, I can remember my dad even saying that I was a mistake. He wished he never had me. And those kind of words, you know, people say words will never hurt you, but I can tell you different. Mm. Words can hurt you bad. Mm. Yep. So I can remember in middle school, and I always hung out because um, when I first went to school, school back then was first grade to 12th grade. Everybody was in the same building. You didn't separate middle school from elementary school to high school. And I always had older kids on the bus that kind of, took me under their wing, so to speak. So I always drew to the older crowd. 
Well, somewhere along the line in the sixth grade, I can remember being introduced as marijuana. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know what to think about it at the time, but, you know, they were doing it, so I tried it. And that numbing feeling was something that was pretty good with all the pain and, you know, the stuff that I'm dealing with in my life. So I kind of got into that part uh, pretty heavy, I would say, for a kid that's just in middle school, you know, Mm -hmm. trying to go along. But And then that led into other things, and then I got introduced to other people and— and the other drugs, harder drugs, a lot more drinking. Drinking was normal, you know. When, like I said about my childhood, passing a bottle to my dad while we were driving down the road, well, I didn't think nothing of that. That's so passing a bottle while you're in a crowd with your friends was no different either, you know what I mean? It just seemed like the thing to do. So stuff like that and dealing with all that pain. So I would self-preserve again, and I would just keep numbing myself. Anything that I could do to myself to take away the pain of life right. was okay with me, mm-hmm. no matter what effect it had on me. Even, you know, in my early childhood, dealing with sexual abuse. Sexual abuse that you didn't know what to do with. You didn't know who to talk to about. And when it's done to you by your own family, mm. you don't feel like you have anybody to talk to about it. You don't feel like you have anybody to go to about it. So you just deal with it. And after a little bit, it almost becomes like normal behavior. So it's the norm. So you don't, that's another thing that just, you just numb up about, you know, because you just don't understand it as a child and what's being done to you. You don't know how to handle things. You don't know what to say. You don't know whether, who to go to. You don't know who to reach out for help or you don't know if you're supposed to reach out for help. Mm -hmm. Maybe you think this is what it's supposed to be like and this is normal. Because you don't talk about those things back them days. You know, you're talking 50 years ago. They weren't counselors at every door, you know, every building that you run past and stuff like that, and therapy building, you know, therapy people like there is today. So you just learned on your own to deal with it however best you can. Mm-hmm. And my best I could was drug abuse. And that became a normal part of my life as well, you know, and, and every opportunity I had, I was. And every opportunity I had to get away from home, I was. I can remember as a child growing up, I could leave the house at the, in the morning and never even say anything to my, either one of my parents and be gone all day until dark. You know, there's no cell phones. They have no clue where I'm at and no clue if I'm coming home. But I always came home. I don't know why I never ran away with all that stuff going on. You know what I mean? I, I think the reason I didn't was because I knew my mom wasn't running away. She was always there to talk, somehow try to protect us. Mm-hmm. So I felt like if I ran away, then my mom would be all alone. And that's probably the only reason I never ran away. Although I had plenty of opportunity. You know, it's just like I said, you know, we, that's just how it was back then. You know, you could run around like that all day long and not worry about anybody. You didn't think about pedophiles and stuff like that like they talk about today. And, like, I worry about my grandkids. I don't want to even get, let them get out of my sight, you know what I mean, because there's, you're always afraid of somebody going to snatch them up or what they're going to do. But anyway, getting through my – I made it through my middle school years – and I got into high school, and by the way, that's when we finally moved from Gamber to Eldersburg, and we moved into this little house out there, this little two-bedroom, single bath, and uh, I finally had a bathroom to take a shower, and it was pretty awesome. Wow. I, was, I was, like, taking two a day. <laughs> that's huge. It was, it was huge, yeah, to say the least. They have running water falling on you. It was pretty cool. Mm. But anyway, so I made it through high school, 
And I always ran into the wrong crowd because I was always looking for the things, you know, that I needed to take care of me. Me. Hmm. I never really cared about too many other people. So it was that self-preservation that got me into a lot of different drugs, a lot more alcohol. And, yes, I did abuse quite a bit. And, you know, all along that path, those things that I grew up with still haunted me. I had gotten involved with pornography. That was like a an everyday part of my life. You know, I, was, it, I ran it as a young person, child. I found my dad's books out in the shed one day you know and of course and man that was like finding a treasure so i sat out there for hours mm-hmm. with the door shut in the shed mm-hmm. looking at all these magazines you know and all these women that i've never seen before and it's, you know it just got into me and i got into it and today it's still one of my struggles mm-hmm. you know i get victories over it but it's just one of those things that you uh have to daily deal with you know with the with the help of god i can get through all those types of things but anyway going through school was tough for me again when I got into high school because you know this is when I was very athletic and I was good at sports and I never had the opportunity to play baseball play soccer do football I can remember my dad picking me up after school every day from ninth grade till the time I could drive would pick me up be sitting out there in the parking lot waiting on me take me to a job site somewhere drop me off with a list of things to do and then come back at dark and pick me up and that was my daily routine Get up, go to school, get picked up, get taken to a job, and then get picked up at dark, go home, eat dinner, and go to bed. Mm-hmm. It was, it is what it is, you know. And, but that's that was the norm for me, so I didn't think any other way. You know what I mean? I knew my my buddies and stuff were going out and doing things and playing sports and big into that. And I never really had a girlfriend. Didn't have no self esteem for a girlfriend. You know, I didn't think much of myself personally. Uh, struggled with acne real bad, so that was big in high school. You know what I mean? You know, so. Those kinds of things I, I steered away from as far as trying to find a girlfriend or whatever. So I hung around with my buddies. That's all I did, and we did a lot of drinking. Mm. My one friend's, uh, his father taught us how to make wine, homemade wine. So as you know, <laughs> as a young guy, teenager in high school, man, we thought that was awesome. So we made a lot of homemade wine, and he lived back along the, um, the Patapsco Park. So we had access to all these thousands of acres with motor, you know, motocross bikes and stuff. So we would get our wine. We'd make our wine. We'd jump on a motorcycle. We'd take off, go riding all back through the woods, back by the lake, Liberty Lake Reservoir and whatnot, and uh, just do crazy stuff. So those kinds of things were pretty wild. You know, I had a lot of memories of that kind of wildness, you know, just running crazy. You know what I mean? Because I could, and I don't know, I just seemed like I had so much to do inside of me that I wanted to get out to release that I never had released like in sports you could release a lot of stuff mm-hmm. you know what I mean you got a guy out there on the field with a football you want to knock him down so you run and you hunt you run hard and you do your best to tackle him well I didn't get a chance to do all that so I did it elsewhere got into a lot of fights got fights in middle school got fights all through high school you know I always carried a chip on my shoulder I never took you know I didn't take too kind to, to harsh words from somebody else I was quick to, you know, snap, anger, had bad anger issues, and uh, carried them through most of my life, mm-hmm. had anger issues. But it's understandable growing up in the manner that I grew up, you know, some of the things that I did today, I understand more now of why I did a lot of what I did and 
the things that um took place. I do remember though, because you know Christianity never really evolved into my life until way later in my life as an adult. But I can remember my mom every Sunday grabbing me and my sister and going down to the Methodist church and sitting on that hard old pew listening to the preacher and trying to sit there and not squirm and not move and not, you know, not paying attention to anything, but just being there. And my mom was diligent about that. I don't know how um, spiritual really my mom was on a, on a personal level, but I do know she was diligent about taking my sister and I. And my dad never showed up at none of that kind of stuff. You know, that, that was out of the question. But I do thank my mom for being that like that and um, introducing me that even though I wasn't really paying attention or getting involved, mm-hmm. something in there was seated. You know what I mean? So lo and behold, I finally get to my senior year in high school and I'm a mess. You know, inside, outside, I'm a mess. I'm doing drugs all the time. I'm drinking a lot. I'm running around. I finally got my driver's license. And um, seems like every weekend I'm getting another speeding ticket. Because all my life is about speed. Go fast, as fast as I can go. Anyway, I started going, uh, I think it was my sister. Started with my sister was getting involved with a youth group over at um, Brandenburg Methodist Church. Hmm. So she invited me to their youth group to play softball. Okay which was a local thing. And I knew some of the people that were there. And my cousin, who was like one of my brother, like, like a brother, we grew up very close together. He was my mom's sister's uh, son. And we were always together as children because uh, my grandmother always watched all of us kids. My mom, my, you know, myself and my sister and my aunt's five kids. So anyway, so he was kind of tugging on me and said, yeah, come on, let's go do this. This will be fun. So we get over there and my sister, introduces me to her best friend, Sandy. Well, she comes to me, and she's got this big glow, you know, and I'm, I'm like, taken back by this beautiful girl who is showing a little interest in me, first time ever, you know, of anything like this. Mm-hmm. So I didn't know how to act. So I started acting pretty stupid, you know, and uh, next thing I know, she's calling me hun. And all this thing, you know what I mean? And I, I don't know how to take any of this kind of stuff. I'm kind of flabbergasted and not knowing what to do. And next thing I know, you know, she goes to leave and she's got a car. It's a little firebird. Well, she has some kind of issue with it. And, of course, me growing up with my dad, who's very mechanical, I, I kind of learned how to do all that kind of stuff. So I was Mr. Hero and fixed her car before she got, you know, so she could get home. Well, that worked out well. That was pretty cool. So anyway. Good deal, huh? Yeah, really good deal. So anyway, <laughs> um. I saw her in school one day, and she comes running up to me. She's a sophomore, and I'm a senior at this point. And um, she just, you know, all glowed up, you know what I mean? And I'm, I, I don't know how to take all this. So I go home one day, and I'm, I'm over at my friend's house, and we're uh, sitting in the basement, and we're talking about it. And I'm telling him about how, you know, this girl in school and it's best friend of my sister's is paying all this attention to me, right, and giving me all this attention. And he's like, man, you ought to ask her out. I'm like, man, I can't do that. I don't know how to do that. I've never done that in my life. You know what I mean? He's just got, come on, come on, come on. And I can remember being in the basement of his mom and dad's house. They had these, like, restaurant booths down there. Mm-hmm. You sit in this booth with this high back, a center table, like, 
and they had two or three of them in a, in a row down there, and they had a, a little rotary phone. So I remember getting her phone number, and we're sitting down there, and him, he's on one side, I'm on the other, and we're sitting at this table, and I'm thinking, I'm trying to build up the nerve to call her to ask her out. And so I did. I got up the nerve. I called her. I asked her out, and sure enough, she said yes. Yeah. So I'm going to tell you right now, my world turned upside down. You know, here I am, a senior in high school. I've been pretty much like an outcast. I don't have a lot of friends. I have a few tight friends. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, I got this girl who's interested in me. And, man, as far as I'm concerned, she's gorgeous. So long story short, we went out. And today, we, um, we're celebrating 40 years together. Wow. So it's, um, it's pretty neat. She was my first, you know, and um, as far as I'm concerned, she'll be my last, which is pretty neat. And um, so we started dating, and in that part of my life, got pretty crazy too. I can remember picking her up and taking her out, but she had this early curfew. So when we'd get done with her, our date, I had to run her back, but I got all this night left. So my idea was to go hang out with some friends since, you know, everybody else is still out. So let's go out and we'll do whatever. And she didn't really know about my party life. I didn't, you know, introduce her to none of that kind of thing. She was a pretty mm. clean girl, good girl with a um, <laughs> a bad guy, I would say. That's kind of like the persona I like to carry back then. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? The tough guy, the bad guy. Anyway, so... As we progressed in our relationship, I got the feeling like she was way too needy for me. She was always wanting me to be with her, and I wasn't used to none of that kind of thing. So we had a lot of turmoil, and that turmoil kind of led me back into those feelings from my past, and which got me deeper into drug use and alcohol. So we carried uh, not a real good relationship at first. It was kind of off and on. I'd try to push her away. And she kept trying to get back, and I I didn't know how to handle all that, you know what I mean? Because this was all new to me, first of all. Me being a loner was the way of life in my eyes, and sharing it with somebody really didn't fit the, the category, so to speak. So, but she was very persistent. So there for a while, we kind of like on and off with our relationship, and then my sister and her and my mom started going to this church down in Ellicott City mm-hmm. called the Full Gospel Pentecostal. And she did get get saved down there. So then her whole demeanor with what we would do when we went out was different. You know, it wasn't no more drinking and doing the things we were doing. She had a whole different outlook on everything. And I I didn't know what to think about all that. You know what I mean? And she kept inviting me to come down to that church. My sister would and my mom. And I'm ah, that's, that's not for me. You know, I'm not ready for all that. I can't handle all that, you know. So I resisted quite a bit at first. And then we got a little more into our relationship. And it got to the point where our weekends turned into her going to church. On Friday nights, they had you know, their youth things. So then she would go to church, and I would choose to not go to church. So there we were separating again, and, I, and it was just a lot of turmoil, you know, in our relationship. Back, back on and off, on and off, on and off. She was really getting, she was really struggling with what she was doing, 
trying to be with me who was wanting no part of that. And I was struggling with what she was doing, not wanting to be with me. Mm. And you know what I mean? So mm. it was a real, and there again, with dealing with um, things like that, I didn't do real well. And I, I guess it's just because of how all the things that happened in my childhood, how I handled situations like that. I didn't handle them very well. So I just kept doing what I did no matter what she was doing. It just, to me, it's like, okay, you're just going to do your thing. I'm going to do mine, and we'll see see where it goes. Well, it went on and on. And let me think where I'm at here. So we're we're pretty deep in our relationship. I've done graduated high school. I'm already out working. I got a pretty good job. I'm working over in D.C. and Virginia. And now I'm a form carpenter for a big... Um, construction company one of the largest concrete construction companies on the east coast at the time miller and long and i really liked my job but the but the thing was over there i was my drug use was almost doubled because i had to get up really early in the morning i got into that uh little thing they called black beauties it was just a speed Mm -hmm. you know it's something that just almost like mega caffeine pills Mm -hmm. and i was eating them like candy Mm. and it just got worse. My um, my whole demeanor was affected by it. You know, anything that would upset any normal person, it made it was just like went off the chart with me. You know, and it was I, I never handled myself very well. Got into a lot of arguments, and it was like that was normal growing up. So it was normal for me as an adult. You know what I mean? Just to argue about it, and I didn't. I always tried to win my way about everything, and I wouldn't. I didn't really cave much to the other person's side of any story you know i had my own way of doing things and handling things but as we went along in our uh, relationship marriage was getting talked about and this is around 1982 and i was really struggling with that decision whether to do anything like that because we were so on and off and i didn't know if i was ready for all that you know what i mean i had a lot of stuff going on i had a lot of junk in my in my baggage and somewhere along the line, I guess we, I agreed to it. And in, in, in um, June of 83, we got married and we moved in together in a little place out off of Woodbine road. How old were you then, Jim? I was 22, 21 going on 22. Gotcha. And um, we were both young. She was only 20. And she was very involved in the church at that time. And I remember going down and seeing her pastor at the church. And um, he wasn't real keen on marrying us unyoked, you know, unequally yoked. Mm -hmm. So he called it, you know what I mean? I wasn't sure about what he meant. Mm -hmm. And, um, but he agreed to do it because she was um, insistent on marrying me. So I can remember going through all that. And anyway, life wasn't a cherry (laughs) after that. I was still doing my drinking. She was still involved in church. So Sunday morning, she was going to church. Sunday night, she was going to church. Wednesday night, she was going to church. Friday night, she was going to church. So every chance she went to church, I went to the bar with my buddy, you know, drinking, shooting pool, and doing stuff like that. So she would come home full of joy, and I'd come home full of beer. Did she Did she know what you were doing? Yeah, she knew I was going to the bars. But, uh, you know, I wasn't. I had my own mind made up, and I wasn't going to that church. I wasn't, you know, I didn't have nothing to do with any of that kind of stuff. I wasn't, 
I wasn't there, so to speak, in my life. That that statement, full of joy versus full of beer, that kind of jumped out to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what it was. I would come home full of beer and um, full of attitude because I was I was almost to the point where I was jealous that she thought more of the church than she thought of me to hang out with me. Okay, so now I got jealousy in there. I got alcohol in there. I got anger in there. And I was a ticking time bomb, you know, just ready for somebody to snap that fuse. And I was off. And it wasn't good. I mean, I can remember quite a few episodes of the the drunken rages, you know, in the house and how how much I scared her. You know, I can still see that look in her face. That's kind of burnt in there, you know what I mean? One of those things that you don't forget about. Anyway, there was some tough times. And then, so then, 83, 84, I remember when we got married, her grandparents actually gave us a piece of property, mm-hmm. which was pretty cool. You know, I de- and me growing up, from what I came from, I never thought I'd ever have a piece of land or a house of my own, anything like that. You know what I mean? So when they gave us this acre of ground, and they deeded it to my wife and my father-in-law, and my name wasn't on the property. And I, I kind of got why. You know, and I felt some resentment about that because, you know, I was like, well, you know, this was a gift to Sandy and I, but yet it doesn't feel like a gift to me. You know what I mean? So I had some inside things going on there that caused me a lot of trouble. And then her father decided he was going to build a house for Sandy and I, my wife. And I was not about it. And he said, I'm going to build you this little house and you're going to live there and you're going to this, that, and the other. And I'm like, nope, nope. And nope, I'm not doing any of that. I was like, uh, you can build that house all you like, but I won't be living in it. I was like, I want to build my own house, and I will do so when my name goes on the property and your name comes off of it. At this point, I'm working for her father. I had lost my job down there in Virginia with Miller and Long due to a friend of mine's inability to get out of bed on time to get to the job, right? So now I'm working for him, and now he's telling me what to do with my, you know, all this other stuff. So it wasn't going over well mm-hmm. with me. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a man of my own means, mm-hmm. always have been since I was very little. So to have someone like that telling me these things was just off. The, no, that wasn't happening. And he, he was also a big drinker. And I can remember a lot of times him and I, would, we would butt heads, and I mean we would butt heads big. Real big. Yeah. Get into some of that later on. But anyhow, so anyway, I, I was very persistent, and I, was not, I wasn't budging on that deal about the house. Okay, so 85 came and went. 86 came, and, and then finally uh, they, they gave in to me, and we went to the courthouse and got the, the deed transferred over to Sandy and I, mm-hmm. and immediately I went right to a bank. And I got a loan, and I went to 84 Lumber, and I picked out a, my wife and I picked out a home package, and I built us a house. I was 24 years old, but very determined. Never had done anything like this before in my life, but I was all, I was all in. You know what I mean? I was all about it. This was really, really cool. I thought, you know, this is, this is like the biggest thing in my life, you know, now. So we finally got through the start of it in 85. Actually, we finished it in 86. I moved in, and through the time of building my house, 
my father-in-law, who was my employer, and I, man, we were struggling bad. I mean, I'm, I was, a, in my opinion, the, the hardest worker he ever seen. And he took advantage of that. And he wanted me on the job all the time. He didn't want, even want to leave me get off the job to go home to, to meet an inspector, to do anything with my house building, right? And I was there working with him the whole time. My brother-in-law, who my wife's oldest sister's husband, built his house, which my father-in-law would pay me to go down there during the week and work at his house all the time. Okay, so now I'm at, I'm at the point where I'm building my house, and I can't even get off for two hours to go meet an inspector. So you have to understand where I'm at at that. You know, that just raged me. And, I mean, we got into some big-time fights. Nothing physical had ever happened, but, man, the screaming, the yelling. Jeez. And I Almost, quit. huh? I quit. <laughs> mm. I said I've had enough. I'm done. February of 86, I launched off JNS Concrete. Mm. I started with absolutely nothing, just my pickup truck. A few hand tools, but a lot of determination. And I made it work, you know, made it work. I worked my butt off. I made uh, pretty decent money. My wife at the time, she was working at Geico down in Bethesda. She had a right good job. So the two of us together, we were doing pretty good. I think around 87 came along. And um, my drug use really never stopped. Mm. My alcoholism never really stopped. It kind of like might have magnified a little bit because now I was feeling good about me. So I would be like almost like celebrating my achievements inside and outside. Mm. If you kind of get that. Mm -hmm. So I was making good money. So I was spending money, spending money on things I shouldn't have spent money on. My wife really didn't know nothing about all that kind of thing. Kind of hid all that. Cause like I said before, I was good at lying. If you remember earlier in the story mm -hmm. and, um, and I was good at manipulating, you know, very, very good at manipulating to get my way. Well, somewhere along the line, I'm slipping up pretty bad in my marriage because with my wife doing what she's doing and I'm doing what I'm doing, we're, we're living like two separate lives and just meeting back at home. Mm -hmm. Take off in the morning, it's two separate lives, and then meet back at home. And that wasn't doing real well. I wasn't paying attention to my wife. I was too involved with my work. And at that point in my life, you know, that was big for me. I mean, it was, I was really working, really doing a lot of stuff and had employees now, people depending on me to keep work going. And I was really hustling it out there. And we were really getting, so to speak, separated, but still living together. You know what I mean? Um, I was emotionally detached. I was too caught up in my own things, my business, you know, my own, my own personal junk. And I was a mess. It was a real mess. I remember using real bad. I remember when my wife came home, she, she said, I'm done. I can't live like this anymore. I'm moving out. And I was devastated. You know, that, I didn't see that coming. You know, and this was like a, being mowed down by a freight train. When I watched her walk out that door across the yard to her parents' house, because I lived behind her parents' house, that was a tough time for me. And for a few days, man, I didn't handle it well at all. My business suffered. The guys that worked for me suffered. I was just going bananas, drinking a lot. And I got to this point where she wouldn't talk to me. 
And this is where God showed up in my life. <laughs> Somehow, I don't know, but I just felt the need to get down on my hands and knees in the middle of my kitchen and crying out to God. And just telling him, if there's anything you can do with me, please just do something. I can't live like this. I need change, and I need it now. And I'm telling you, when I did that, I meant that. And I'll never forget that weight that just felt like was disappearing. All that crap that I was carrying around dealing with. And I remember going over to her house the next day and I knocking on the door, you know, and telling her what I did. And she just looking at me like I got two heads, you know what I mean? Which I understand. And she was like, you know, you say all that, but, you know, I don't believe any of that, this, that, and the other. And I said, but I'm going to show you. So I started going to the church. I started going down there and I, I can remember um, Pastor Smith doing an altar call, which he did every single Sunday. And I got up out of that pew and I did that altar call I did that walk I got up there on my knees and I can remember that church just going crazy because they had been praying for me and praying for me man what a what an experience to have that Holy Spirit hit you and that feeling of God just coming in and just taking over man it was unbelievable I had never experienced anything like that in my life and I was into it and I did, you know, and I, I went every time those doors were open, I was in that sanctuary. I quit drugs. I quit drinking. I quit smoking. I quit cussing. I mean, everything. It was unbelievable. And I can remember it took my wife quite a while to actually believe it. You know, she goes, seeing is one thing, but living it's another. But I lived it. I can remember it caused a lot of issues with my work. <laughs> <laughs> I would holler at the guys for cussing. <laughs> Imagine that. Mm. <laughs> I wouldn't let them smoke no more. You know, I wouldn't let them smoke dope and all that kind of stuff that we were used to doing every day. And they were like, man, who is this guy? You know? He's different. Yeah, he was definitely different. It was uh, quite a time in my life. And um, I can remember it probably took, I can't remember exactly. So I'm not sure. I'll just guess at that it's, it was probably a few months and my wife decided to move back home mm. and that was a that was a major thing in my life when she decided to move back home and I mean now we get to go to church together you know what I mean because I was all in man but I'm, I'm in something I'm all in I'm not just half-assing it or that you know I'm I'm all in and that's how I've always been I'm still that way so Lo and behold, we got very involved with the church and the youth and, you know, and then now my wife, you know, and I, I forgave her what she did. She forgave me for what we did. We, we you know, we re reunited and got our act together as far as a couple goes. And then we started talking about kids. Hmm. And she goes, you know, now, now I'm, I'm willing to have kids with you. I said before, there was no way I was having a kid with this monster in my house. And I'm like, I can't blame you. You know, I, I totally agree. And, and uh, lo and behold, God blessed us with a beautiful little girl on August the 7th, 1988. I'll never forget that day. Neither one of us wanted to know what sex it was. We didn't want to have no idea. We didn't want, you know, anything. We just wanted it to be a total, you know, unknown blessing from the Lord. And then 
out pops this beautiful, perfect little baby girl, man. It was just awesome. She was a joy of my life. And I can remember those times were really, really, really good, really good. And then two and a half years later, I had my my little son. I can remember going to our first sonogram, you know, and the, the doctor's running that thing around on Sandy, and we're getting to see the baby, you know, inside for the first time. And I saw its legs in there crossed, and inside that, I could tell what that was, right? I was like, oh, that's my boy. You know, and it was really, really cool. And the doctor was like, yep, that's exactly what that is. And I was like, I knew it. Mm-hmm. So, and I was just so overwhelmed, you know, mm-hmm. here I got my girl and I'm at my boy. And uh, <laughs> it's funny, an outlaw like myself named Jesse and James. So you you take that for what you want. <laughs> Love it. But it was pretty cool. So today they're 31 and 28. And I mean, they're just both a blessing. My son works for me full time, but uh, that's not where the story ends. I mean, it's just kind of like beginning there. And um, so, and my wife decided that she wanted to be a complete stay-at-home mom, raise the kids, me be the breadwinner, you know, work, continue on with the the business. And um, so that's what we did. She quit. She quit a really nice paying job. And then also um, entailed a lot of sacrifice on our part. We lost a full income. And we were used to doing a lot of things together. We had at that point in our lives before the kids, you know, I was doing pretty well in business. She had a good paying job. She was a claims administrator at Geico for, um, well, like an affiliate Garden State insurance company. And um, so she had a real good job. But anyway, um, at that point, we had camper. We had a boat. You know, we had two vehicles. We were always going to Deep Creek Lake and hanging out every weekend, taking friends up there and hanging out on the water all weekend long, coming back. So when we had the two kids and she decided that um, she wanted to be a stay-at-home mom and not work anymore, it was like, okay, well, we can't afford this camper anymore. We really can't afford the boat no more because we don't have time to go and do any of that kind of stuff. Two car payments weren't feasible. So we had to decide on a lot of things, you know, and, and we sacrificed a lot from what we were used to doing, downscaling to doing what we thought the Lord wanted us to do, and that's raise our kids in a, you know, in a godly home, going to church, learning about Christ and all that kind of thing. So we actually took both vehicles and traded them in on one that gave us the ability to use for both of us. It was a pickup truck with, back then, one of the very first models of an extended cab. Hmm. You know, so we had a brand new short bed extended cab Chevy four-wheel drive truck man it was awesome I thought it was great you know so things were going pretty well um she did really well raising our children while you know I did the work I managed my time pretty well where I didn't work late in the evenings I was able to come home and have time with my kids and uh, things were like man this was awesome you know it's pretty cool things were going real well um Thoughts about drugs and drinking weren't even a part of my life anymore. You know, going to church all the time and being a godly man was, you know, key in my life at that point. And um, raising my kids and being a changed individual, you know, from from all the stuff and craziness that I was used to. So going through life, we were doing that real well. And then she decided she wanted to try homeschooling, you know, so... We prayed about it and thought that, 
you know, felt both of us had felt that God was leading us in that path. So, you know, she's definitely smart enough. She was a scholar student all through high school every single year. So she was very smart. Me, on the other hand, never accomplished my high school diploma. I was just graduation from the school of hard knocks, you know. So anyway, she started teaching the kids, man, and that was doing, that was really well. You know, it was going well because it was very convenient. If we wanted to pick up and go somewhere, do something, you know, we just did. We didn't have to worry about pulling the kids from school, you mm-hmm. know, and, and any of that kind of inconvenience. Her basic school day lasted about an hour and a half to two hours every day, which was great. The kids loved it. They got a lot of play time. She had time. She loved doing what she was doing. I loved it. No, it was everything was peachy. You know what I mean? Mm. Wasn't a whole lot of tidal waves going around, mm-hmm. so to speak. So things were cool. Um, got to meet a lot of new different friends. You know, we were hanging out with Christians more so than we did people of the world like we used to. And um, life was good. Kids are growing, man. We're doing a lot of good, cool things, you know. I'm I'm able to um, share a lot of neat experiences with my kids. I would take them. I was big into hunting, and I would take my kids hunting. I would teach them how to shoot, and they loved it. You know, they really got into that. At an early age, I got a go-kart because I was always a speed nut. So I thought, well, I could share that with my kids. So I got them a go-kart, and we used to take off, and I'd take them places out in the parking lots of these big shopping centers on the weekend where nobody was around and experience all that kind of stuff, you know what I mean, and and enjoy just being with the kids. Mm-hmm. And it was a lot of fun, man. And my daughter, my gosh, I didn't realize how much of a motorhead she turned out to be in a hot foot. I can remember a time we, we took off on our first trip to Disney World. Okay, I want to share this with you guys because it's really a neat story. And um, I was big in the NASCAR, and Daytona was like the hub of NASCAR. And I always wanted to go down and see the track. So I was like, you know, we're going to go to Disney World, but Dad's going to take a day, and we're going to go to, Dis- to Daytona. We're going to go out on the beach. We're going to have- be cool. It's a drive-on beach. They've never seen nothing like that before. And we're going to go to the track. So we kind of like signed up for a track tour and did all this thing. We got over to the racetrack after experiencing driving on the beach and uh, whatnot. So we get over there, we do this big track tour around the track, and it's, it's absolutely humongous. It's a two-and-a-half-mile high bank, you know, speedway. And then we go, and we get our family picture taken in Victory Lane, which is really neat, the kids and me and Sandy. And I happened to notice on this billboard as we went into Daytona Speedway, and it showed the picture of these dragsters, and it said zero to 75 miles an hour in three seconds. I'm like, wow, that's pretty cool. I would really like to do that. Right. So when we got done with the track tour over at Daytona, I said, let's go over here. I'm going to see this thing. And it's off season. And we get over here. We're the only people in the place. Mm. So I sign up and it's $20 for two passes. You get actually strapped into a dragster. It's got a small block Chevrolet performance motor on the back, just like you see like in an HRA. So as I'm signing up and getting my passes, my daughter seems to think she can do this because she sees the sign over here that's got a line that says, if you're this tall, you can do this. Mm. So she's like, Dad, Dad, look, I'm, I'm tall enough. I want to do this. All right. So I grabbed another $20 bill out. She got a ticket. We go down there. 
and I let her do her thing. She goes over there. They, they sit her in a car. They tell her what to do. I'm sitting over there, and I'm just watching my daughter get into this dragster, you know, and I'm sitting over there thinking, I'm like, this is, man, this is awesome. This is cool. I'm getting ready to go fast because I like to go fast. So anyway, they strap her in. They tell her what to do. And you literally got to drive this thing, and it's got a speed button on, a shift button on this little butterfly hand, you know, steering wheel. So he says, you watch the tree come down, and when it hits the last yellow light, boom, it's going to be green. Stand on the gas, hold it to the floor, and go. So I'm looking at her over there. You know, she, I, I see her. She's just nine, okay? Yeah. <laughs> so the lights come down. Man, I stand on the gas, and I get to the other end. And, I mean, I got this grin on my face like there's just no tomorrow. I was like, wow, that was what a, what a rush, you know, because, I mean, it was really fast, really quick. And I get and I look at over there at her, and, man, her eyes were like as big as teacup saucers. So this thing has this automatic braking system on it where you, there's a rail, a steel rail down the track. And as you get to a certain point, this braking system clamps down on this rail. And, I mean, it stops you as fast as it launches you. So this thing automatically backs you back up. And I'm over there looking at her. Now she's got this big chesty cat grin on her face, you know, and I'm thinking, I'm just shaking my head thinking, I can't believe this little girl is doing this, right? So we back back up. And the guy looks at us, gives us a thumbs up. We both thumb up. Here come the lights. Man, I never caught her. She cut a light on me, got to the other end before I did, and I never, to this day have not heard the end of that. Whoa. Nine years old, and she out drag raced me. A nine-year-old. Zero to butt. 75 in three seconds. Whoa. <laughs> cool story, but, you know, let's move on. But anyhow, that was my daughter, man. And she's always been that way. She's always been like, my wife refers to her as you're just like your father. Mm -hmm. <laughs> hot head, hot foot, all that good stuff. That's cool, though. But anyhow, so we're moving along in life, and things are really good. So we're getting to the point where we got some more decisions to make in life with our kids. And um, I think she's, after five years of homeschooling, I think she's ready to, um, you know, she's talking about, let's let's think about, and pray about putting this, the kids in uh, a Christian school. Because they're getting to the point where they're older now, and they've done this for so long, and she's getting frustrated with, you know, the way things are going in school, especially with my daughter. And my, my son would have been okay with homeschool all the way to graduation. But my daughter, on the other hand, was starting to fight it. We had her involved in a lot of neat things. She, at a young age, was a twirler. And my wife would take her to um, these parades where, you know, you had your baton twirlers and whatnot. So she did a lot of that kind of thing. And then she got into competitions where she did this dance twirl competition where it was not parades anymore. It was literal competitions. And to the point where she was so good and people were saying how good she was that we were getting private teaching um, and then we got her signed up into some really, really good comp competitive groups that, that um, she had joined. And we're out competing and winning lots and lots of awards. So at this point, my wife's like, you know, I think maybe we should just think about and pray about getting them into school. So we did. And we both felt that MACA, Mount Airy Christian Academy, would be a good fit. You know, it wasn't too far. And they had a really good program. So we did that. They put both kids in there, and at that point in time, they only went up to eighth grade. So, so we had choices to make, too, at eighth grade, what we were going to do. 
but we both felt like, you know, they were very grounded. You know, we, we, we brought them, we felt like we raised them right, you know, in the sight of God. And they were, they, they both said they loved the Lord and, you know, accepted Christ when there was, you know, little kids. So we decided that high school would be okay in public situ- in public school. And we let them go to South Carroll High School where both my wife and I graduated. And at that point, when my wife let go of the kids, she felt like she didn't have anything to do. So she thought that getting back into the workforce would be a good thing. I, my thoughts, I didn't think so. I was cool with the way she was doing it. My business was pretty good. I, you know, she was doing my books and taking care of that kind of thing. So I felt like I needed her for that anyway, but she had other thoughts and we didn't agree, but I went along with it. So she had gotten this job. She had an offer. So things started changing a lot for me. Um, she didn't have time to do the book work. I had to start learning how to take payroll reductions, taxes, billing, you know, and taking care of all my paperwork and do all the physical work in the business as well. And I didn't like doing that because that took away all my home time when I got home. So now once I'm physically working labor labor all day long, then I got to come home and do this. And that, that didn't suit well with me. And then I got to struggling with that. The more she got involved with the work, you know, I, I mean, she like, went all in and I get that because that's the type of personality she is we're a lot alike in that that when we do something we do it with everything in us and like I said I was struggling with that I was struggling some of my junk from my past was coming back where that um that feeling again was creeping into me about my self-worth about me being needed my um I'm trying to think of the word, but I can't put it into words right now. But it just did something to me inside that I struggled with hard. And I I guess you could say I fell off the wagon like an alcoholic does when he goes back to drinking. And I sought out some people that I, I used to hang with a long time ago, and um, I got back into drugs. And I did that unknowing to her, so I hid it real well. And the fact that I could hide it and get away with it just made it worse. Because mm. then I got to doing it more and more and more. And then we got to struggling in our marriage. And the arguing, the fighting got came back like it was in our in our beginning, you know. And um Tim, you had mentioned before with drugs. In most cases, those heavily involved in drugs can't do anything else. Even they financially, things fall apart. But you managed to keep working, paying the bills, and all those things. Mm-hmm. Why? I mean, how could you do that? I guess you would say it's because of the drug of choice I chose. Okay. I didn't go down the opiate mm-hmm. road where, like, a quaalude would, like, knock you out, and then you almost feel inebriated mm-hmm. to where you can't function or the way alcohol affects you when you get so many drinks in you, you, you just can't function properly. I chose a, what they called the rich person's drug of choice, and that was cocaine, because it made me feel um, invincible. 
I felt good. I felt alert. I felt on top of the world. I felt on top of my game. And it didn't, it wasn't a drug that made me feel down and low. It was a, a drug that made me feel up and above everything, you know, and which was bad because the better it made me feel, the more I used it. Hmm. So I was a, I was the kind of guy that could do that first thing in the morning. I could do it in the middle of the day. I could do it at night. I could do it in the evening. I could do it any time. And it didn't alter the way I worked. It almost enhanced it to the point where that's like, like a, like a professional football player would use a steroid because it's going to enhance his performance. But it's still an illegal drug. Mm. Okay, well, cocaine was just like that to me. If that's the best scenario I can give you as far as how it made me feel, it, it enhanced everything about me that I thought anyway. You know, I'm sure those are all wrong. But in the time of using, that's how it felt and that's how it, I, I operated. And, um, but cocaine can be expensive. It can be very expensive. That's why they call it the rich man's high. But myself, um, I got involved with people who didn't require me to put up upfront money. And at the time, I could, um, I developed relationships with people that they would front me the drug to where I would come up the road with a large quantity. And just for bringing it up the road, I could take all I needed for nothing and give it to the other guy for just the transport. So nothing came out of my pocket. So that made it convenient because I didn't have to worry about hiding money, mm-hmm. so to speak, where a lot of guys, they try to hide the money, but it, money leads a trail, you know, no matter how you use it. But I didn't have that issue. I didn't have that problem. And I could get it any time I wanted it. Because I was trustworthy, I was um, loyal, so to speak. They they felt that they could trust me with it, and that I wouldn't, you know, cross them. And I didn't, because I I didn't want that dealing anyway. You know, what I mean, I don't want to, I didn't want to have to be hounded by some drug dealer knocking on my door with a gun in the middle of the night. You know what I mean, and all that kind of business. So. I I was not like your average drug dealer, drug person, so to speak. I I did it on a high level, and I was good at hiding it. I was good at lying. I was good at manipulating because those were skills I learned at a really young age in my life to deal with things. And so that went for a while, and then it got to where the relationships, my children are getting older. My daughter is graduating high school. She's starting, you know, she's ready to go to college. My wife's fully involved with work with with no option about quitting, you know what I mean? So there's lots of turmoil in my house. So now I'm almost like back to phase one again in the very beginning where we're leading two separate lives. And there's lots of chaos there's lots of arguing, lots of fighting, lots of bickering. And it's it's just my kids were, you know, they saw me at a, at a point in my life where I was, you know, walking with the Lord and doing things the right way to the point where all that disappeared. And now, I'm like, they're like, who is this guy? You know what I mean? And I, I can't imagine looking back on it, what they had to, 
what they were thinking, you know, what, because what I was doing, it, no question was, was out of complete character for, for them. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So I can understand all the, the questions and, but I wouldn't, I didn't want to deal with none of that stuff. If they, I, I avoided everything. I isolated really big. I would always go down in my basement. I had a TV down there, my, my recliner. It's where I spent my time. They would be upstairs doing their thing. I'd be down there doing my drug use. And isolation is a big part of a drug user's life. Because they know what they're doing is wrong. And they don't want to be out in, uh, and amongst everybody, you know, being like that. And so that's how I was. I was, I was an isolator. I just avoided everything. My daughter is achieving in, incredible things in her twirling to the point where I'm not going to the, to the um, competitions. I stopped going to that. And I know, I know that was very upsetting to her because she was daddy's little girl. And I chose to do my own thing and let her do her own thing with mom. And I really, really, really regret that. And we had a lot of fights. My daughter had a lot of anger. I mean, when I say she was achieving very well, I'm talking about multi-time state champion, multi-time mid-Atlantic champion. My daughter competed in the nationals out at the University of Notre Dame every year always finished in the top five in our nation. I can remember one year when she was out there and I was back home and she called me up and she said, Daddy, I finished second. I got second place in the nation. And I was so proud of her, but she was so upset. She said, I didn't come out here to get second. I came out here to win. And next year I'm going to win. That's the kind of determination she had. You know, so I'm like, you know, I just cheered her on the course and I'm doing my thing. And don't you know the next year she went out there and she competed and she won Miss Majorette of America. Hmm. And I wasn't there. And um, that was a tough time. I felt very selfish. And I have a lot of regrets about that. And feeling those things <laughs> were actually worse for me as a drug user. Because it just made me use more, you know, to cover up the pain that I was feeling and the, the worthlessness and all that crap. And I'll tell you, it was a bad time in my life, man. Like I said, my family was going in one direction and I'm going in another. And, uh, and then my daughter had this opportunity to twirl for Clemson University. They were, they were really after her. And... um. So she went down, and I agreed to pay the bill. <laughs> Wasn't no scholarship money involved. So going to a university like that was pretty expensive for me. Hmm. That was a big hit on my uh, finances. But when she went down there, <laughs> she didn't achieve very well academically. She, uh, she got really good at uh, drinking and stuff like that. As a matter of fact, her academics really just fell to the wayside. 
you know, she was all about twirling on the field with the football at the football games and whatnot, you know, and we would go down there and visit and go to the football games while my, you know, while she's out there on the field doing her thing. And I was a proud dad, but, um, at the same time, I was pretty upset about the fact that she was squandering the opportunity that I'd given her, you know, so I had a lot of resentment there too, you know what I mean? So it was like, I was just, I was just a mess, you know what I mean? Mm. I was mad about the fact that I didn't, I wasn't there and then I give her the opportunity and then I'm watching her do that. And so I was mad about that. So it was just a, a time in my life, man, where nothing was going right that, in, I, in my eyes. And I fell away from God. It's just plain and simple. I stopped crying out to him. I stopped, you know, walking with him. As far as I'm concerned, I was running from him. He never went anywhere. I did. But, you know, I don't know. Um, things went from that to, uh, I I was to the point where I'd like, I'm not going to pay for another year, you know, after that, that first year was over, to, for you to go back down there if you're not going to, you know, do your schoolwork and, and make something out of this. I'm not going to, because it was expensive, you know. I'm talking like 40 grand, because I paid for housing, paid for her vehicle, paid for all of her food, paid for everything. So, I don't know, I guess part of the way through her second year, we get a phone call that she's, uh, she doesn't want to be there anymore. She wants to come home. So my w wife and I, we, uh, we didn't know what to make of all that, because she was pretty, you know, quiet about it. She didn't really give any kind of answer or any reason why. She just said, I don't want to do this anymore. So up the road she came, we brought all her stuff up the road. And um, I don't know, I guess a few months went by and my wife started noticing some things that she would share with me about her. And uh, she had this deep feeling that she was pregnant. I'm like, nah, she's not pregnant. She would say something, you know, she would, you would, you would know it. You know what I mean? You would, that's not something you could just hide. Man, when my wife back in the day said that she's just like her father, let me tell you something. She's just like her daddy. She did hide it. She hid it well. She lied well. All the things like I used to do, you know. And I just, I can remember one day she left in the morning to go to a Ravens football game with some friends. This was in October. Uh, October of 09. And my wife and I are sitting there in the living room watching television, and I get the ringing of the doorbell and we jump up and uh, it's a friend of friends of ours who their daughter is one of the girls that my daughter twirled with so we're like hey what's up and they're uh come on get your stuff we got to go to the hospital and we're like what do you what do you mean we got to go to the hospital he goes yeah jess is in labor and we need to get there oh yeah excuse me <laughs> Those words, Jess is in labor, and we got to get to the hospital, man. We're something that I didn't know what to do with, you know what I mean? I kind of had an idea, but I, was, I didn't really want it to be true, you know what I mean? I didn't, want, I didn't want my daughter to be pregnant true. So I was a, you know, it was an emotional mess of a ride from the house to the Carroll County Hospital where we met my daughter in the bed. 
and I came and walked into her room and she's just a ball of tears, man. She's, she's dealing with all this shame. I didn't know what to do with all that. She had so much to say, but she couldn't say it, you know what I mean? And I just wanted to hug her. I just wanted to let her know I loved her. And that no matter what, we're going to get through this. And at the time, she said, Dad, I don't want to see it. I, I'm not ready for a baby. I can't have this child. So I can remember calling the pastor. And he came running out. And we started talking about somebody, a family that, you know, would be willing to adopt a baby. And, of course, there's always somebody that's willing to adopt a baby. So, I mean, things, I mean, it went into an absolute whirlwind. And my wife and I were just a total mess. You know, we just, we just didn't know what to think about anything, you know. And I can remember she had the baby, left the hospital that night. I went straight to my supply guy. Mm-hmm. And I commenced to snorting a whole lot of cocaine that night. And I got up the next morning. I remember going back out to the hospital. And my my daughter decided that she couldn't give him up. She said, Dad, I can't do it. And I was like, okay, you know. It'll be okay. We'll bring him home. You know, you guys can live here. We'll support you. We'll support him. We'll do whatever it takes to make this work. It was a tough time. I had so much going on in my head. I I can't even put that into words, you know, what that was like dealing with that back then. But I can tell you, it was pretty cool to have that little guy come into our house. And I tell you, he was just an absolute bundle of joy. But I was still struggling really bad with my drug dependency. And it would just be, it was just total chaos. It's the only way I can even describe it. And here I am, you know, <laughs> like coming full circle from the chaos that I lived in when I was a kid to now it's the same old thing. The same old thing. So I can remember my wife saying, we need help. We need marriage counseling. If this is going to work, there's no way I can live with this life like this. we got to have some kind of counseling to get things turned around. And I was still going to church. I was still going to church. But I was numb to the word. You know, I wasn't letting none of it sink in. I wasn't walking with God. I was still shutting out. I was so mad about things, about how things went, about how things were going. I don't know if I blamed God for it, but I wasn't a happy camper. You know what I mean? I, was, I, was, I needed somebody to blame all this on because things were going so good. And then all of a sudden, it just like everything was falling apart again. But that's how Satan works. 
So anyway, I can remember um, my wife and I doing some counseling. It was going in one ear and out the other with me because of, you know, I, I thought I had my act together with what I was doing. And, you know, I was still paying the bills. I was still doing this. I was still doing that all along. I'm still snorting cocaine. So it got to the point where my wife knew something wasn't right. Her women's intuition, <laughs> you know. And um, I guess one day she went downstairs where I isolated a lot, and she got to snooping around. And in my um, my leather recliner, she had found where I kept my little personal stash. And uh, at the time, we had actually um, started going to this place called Celebrate Recovery. You know, it was um, a place for hurts and hang-ups and addictions and whatnot, not just necessarily for drugs and alcohol, but all kinds of hurts, you know, people with their past or codependency issues and stuff, you know. So she thought that'd be a good fit for us. So I was all, you know, like, okay, whatever, I'll do whatever, you know. And here I'm, I'm getting high and I'm going to recovery group on Friday nights. That's how bad it was. I can remember that. And I met this guy who was, a, you know, a heroin user who was cleaned up. And I remember him and he was in my step group. I signed up for a 12-step group. Never done anything like that before. And it, it was, we were going along with that. And um, I developed a pretty good relationship with this guy. And I told everybody I was there for anger issues, you know. <laughs> pretty manipulative. And they all believed me. I, I told a really good story. And um, going along, and then this guy that ran the program, my wife had went to him and shared with him what she had found and asked him to do an intervention. This was, um, I think this was like in October. And he says, well, you know, I'm really, really busy. and um, It's just got, the timing's got to be right. So he says, um, we'll do this, but... You know, you, you might have to wait. So this is what I find out later anyway. You know, it's part of the story. But anyhow, so my wife had to live this up into January through the Christmas holiday, all along knowing what I'm doing now. I had no clue she knew anything. So I remember one night, it was, uh, it was January the 9th, 2012. I'll never forget the day. Buddy, a buddy of mine who I used with um, needed some help with his truck, and I, I had a shop, and I'm pretty mechanical. So he, I told him to meet me at the shop, and I'd help him fix his lights or whatnot. So we're up there working, and I'm working on his truck, and my shop door opens up, right? And then in, in walks this guy that runs the Celebrate Recovery program down at Chapelgate, and I'm like, my eyes got real big, and I'm, like, stunned. And I'm, like, to my, saying to myself, man, what are you doing here? And he just comes in with this big smile. Hey, how you doing? I was like, you know, I'm working on Buddy Mine's truck here and trying to get him going. And he's like, all right, cool. He says, well, when you get done, stop down at the house here. You know, just wanted to talk. So I'm like, okay. So I proceed to finish fixing my buddy's truck. Sending him on his way, and 
Of course, I did a couple more lines before I went down there to build up a little bit of courage because I wasn't sure what was going to happen down here. And uh, so I walk out of the shop, walk down to the house, and I open up the door, and there sits my buddy, actually two of the guys from my step group, the leader of the Celebrate Recovery, my sister and my wife sitting in my living room. Shut the door, and I walked in and said, hey. And then Mike starts to tell me about, well, this is an intervention. Saying he knows about your drug use. And from here on out, things are going to change. At that point, my wife reads me a letter. Hmm. I've never been so humbled in my life to hear that letter in front of those people. And I also, I've never experienced the presence of God like I did that night. It was unbelievable. Again, like in my kitchen, I just felt this presence and this weight that I had been carrying around, all this hiding what I'm doing, all this, you know, all this crap that I'm, the way my life is, just felt like it was leaving me. And I was like, I was like, there was so much peace. I was not argumentative. I had never been so ready to change the way I was living. And I, she gave me this ultimatum. She goes, you know, I'm going to, there's going to be, and they, they set up this thing where they tell me there's going to be a blackout period. I'm not going to be able to contact my wife or my kids for 45 days. She already had her bags packed. She was leaving. She was going to leave and going with my sister. And I, um, I was like, okay. And she said to me before she kissed me and said goodbye, I love you. And I pray that you'll get yourself right. I'm not thinking about divorce, but I can't live like this. And I was like, okay, I got you. I get it, you know what I mean? So, it was seven years and a couple months ago. And I went out and I uh, I called this place called Mountain Manor. It's a recovery center up in Westminster. And I talked to the people there and they asked me to come out and sit with them. And I shared my story of what I was doing. And then I said, I'm willing to do whatever you say I need to do. I was just in that place, you know, in my life where I was willing to do whatever. And they said, well, we recommend a 28-week intensive outpatient program. I said, okay. They said, you're going to come here three nights a week, three hours a night, 
You're going to have to pay for it. We're going to do random urine tests. And your wife's going to have all knowledge of everything. She'll be able to call and find out how you're doing. I'm like, okay. So I did. And also, I got back into the Word, you know. I figured if God's going to be good enough to extend His grace to me once more, that I could at least get back into the Word and walk with God again, because I'm going to need somebody to walk me through all this. Because I'm not strong enough to do it by myself. There's just no way, you know. I depended on my own strength too much, and I, it it's always failed me. So... I started going back to church again, but I went to church with my sister's church. I didn't go, I wasn't allowed to see my wife, so I was doing that and was doing it pretty much every opportunity I had. I was reading a lot. I was, I was alone a lot. So I had the opportunity to dig in and, and get planted into the Word again. And when I finished that 28-week program, I was really proud that I stuck it out because that was that was quite an ordeal to do all that. I was the only person in there that wasn't court ordered. I walked in that place every other night on my own will. And God was very good to me. And at the point though, when I graduated, I still didn't feel like I had the grip on that recovery yet, you know? So on my own, I searched out some more programs and I, I found uh, Westminster Recovery Center. So I called him up. I told him what I'd been through and went in for a counsel and uh, told him that I just didn't think I was ready yet. So they signed me up for another 18-week program. I was going three nights a week again. So I finished that. And of course, after my 45-day blackout, my wife, you know, was um so to speak allowed to talk to me again so it was pretty neat the whole time while i'm doing my recovery we started dating again and i remember going out on little dates every you know every other week or something like that you know and i looked so forward to that you know what i mean it was a time in my life where i cherished those moments because i didn't want to lose her you know I'm I'm 50, 51 years old, and I'm like, I can't do this all over again. Like I told you in the beginning, she was the first, and I looked at her as the last, you know. So I endured all those 18 weeks, and I passed with flying colors, never had a blip. Um, my walk with the Lord was renewed. Man, and it was just... Uh, a tremendous blessing though. Now my wife stayed with my sister for 14 months. It was a little tough period, but God was very gracious in that too. You know, I came to grips with that because at the same time she was doing her own recovery because I had put her through so much stuff. You know, she needed her own healing time and I was good with that. And, um, Today, this year, we're married 36 years. We've been together for 40. I have renewed that relationship with my daughter. 
to the point where she is daddy's little girl again. Hmm. And her family blesses my heart. We're going down to um, Florida in May, and I'm going to walk her out the beach hmm. so that she can say her vows to her husband. And that's going to be a real special time for me. I'm really, really, really looking forward to that. She's with a really good guy. He came and I helped lead him to the Lord. I can remember Pastor Wally at church doing an altar call at Easter. And he got up out of the pew. He went forward and accepted Christ as his Savior. That was an awesome day for me, you know. They were living together. They had uh, had a little girl out of wedlock, which I wasn't real happy about. But I don't understand how God's plan works all the time, but, you know, just glad to be part of it. And um, today, little Emerson's almost three years old, and she is just a doll baby. Hmm. And um, not long after he got saved, I was able to witness him and my daughter get baptized the same day which is, to say the least, that was another absolute joy in my life to watch them two do that. And then soon after that, he felt led to um, take her to the courthouse in Frederick and get married because he knew living in sin like that was not pleasing to God. And I was very proud of him for doing that, you know, and I have a lot of respect for him. And now he wants to do the the wedding vows on their one-year anniversary down at Florida, out on the beach, because that was my daughter's always her dream was to be married on the beach. So we're going to do that for her. I'm glad I'm able to do that for her. I'm thankful for God's healing, for what he's done in my life, for the opportunities that he puts before me to share my story like I'm doing tonight with other men who have traveled that same kind of road who don't see any hope but God is the hope he is all of our hope he is so gracious he is so forgiving unlike us and I tell you the truth man I don't know where I would be without him today I'm so thankful for his renewed spirit in me and the uh, the road that he has me on, the road that he walked me through my entire life because there's no way I'd be here sitting with you guys tonight without him, without him carrying me through those times. You know, God's trials are his trials that he allows us to go through for his glory in his timing. We don't always know when that'll be. It might not be every day. It might not be every year. But when it happens, it's an absolute blessing to be a part of it. When he puts somebody in your path who is struggling and you can share with that person your story, your story of hope, your story of struggle, how God can bring you through all those things and it still be a blessing somehow on the other end. 
You know, you can't always see that when you're going through it because it's pretty miserable going through some of these trials. But God can give them all a good ending for somebody else's purpose. Not necessarily yours. It's just being, you know, being, a, being obedient to his calling for when he calls you to share your story with somebody, you never know the impact it can have on the other end. You might never ever see that person again in your life. But God can use that for his glory somewhere down the road that that guy might be able to impact whoever he comes in, in contact with in the same kind of situation. So these opportunities are pretty cool. I, uh, I'm just very thankful. I'm thankful for where God's got me right now. And, you know, I try real hard. I'm still working in my recovery. You know, that's a daily thing. I keep track of the days that I'm clean because it's important to me. And um, I'm very active in my church today. Matter of fact, my wife and I were greeters at the front door when people come to church, they see me. Mm. <laughs> I would have never guessed that in a million years, you mm. know. But uh, that's where God's got me right now. So it, I think it's pretty cool. You know, and I'm, I'm just thankful for where I'm at today. And thank you, Jim. Uh, you know, there's a lot packed in that story. A mm. lot of it is extraordinarily difficult, but it all begins as a young man. As a young man where you can, over a period of time, see where the breadcrumbs are taking you. The guy who, who felt, you know, left behind, mm. abandoned, didn't, wasn't given the attention, the attention that as a young man you probably needed. Mm. Yeah, I had, uh, I had no idea where my place was, mm -hmm. you know, so I felt always out of place. Yeah. Like I didn't belong, like I wasn't really wanted to be here in the first place. So it had a big impact on me as a child. Yeah. And I know I carried that kind of baggage and, uh, I'm really thankful for a lady that I found, that my wife found, who was a therapist in Lisbon that we both attended to, and she was instrumental in digging into my past, which was so hurtful, so shameful, that I chose not to talk about those types of things. My wife, I can remember my wife sitting in the sessions and hearing things that I was sharing with the therapist. And looking over at her, and she's in total tears mm. because she had no idea. She didn't really know who I was or what I had been through or what I had done and things like that. And that was a big part of my healing was to get back to that and learning how to forgive, you know, like God's forgiven me. I have to be able to forgive those people because a lot of times back then and in years past like that, they didn't know any better. You know what I mean? My dad was probably a product of his upbringing, mm. and he didn't know any better. He didn't have an opportunity to go see a counselor or a therapist to learn different. So I look at it as my opportunity to do different and my opportunity to share with my son to do different so that he doesn't make the same mistakes that I made raising my kids and, and you know, with my wife and whatnot. So now I see everything like that as an opportunity to share so it might be able to help someone else. Yeah, and you're talking about that, uh, and I'm quite aware of this as well, but that, you know, you don't know what your own father went through, and 
and we begin to rationalize the things that they did to you as well that's because that's because they're this way or that's because of this way but the impact of that is still extraordinarily real and lifelong changing isn't it absolutely yeah so, so why do you have to go back i mean why do you have to go back and deal with that i think the biggest thing is it's for your healing purposes you know forgiveness is for you not necessarily the other person well said because when you forgive somebody you're releasing that burden and that baggage and that hurt and you're leaving it say to say like you're leaving it at god's feet at the foot of the cross where he wants you to leave it because he tells us we're not big enough to carry that kind of thing he is you know and it's it's not an easy thing to do but it's an important thing to do for your own personal well-being you know to be able to carry on and not carry that kind of luggage and baggage that we really aren't physically capable of doing. You were left with some rather deep scars down even to the the physical abuse, mm. the yes. physical sexual abuse at one time. How do you deal with that? I mean, they, they don't just disappear, do they? No, they don't disappear, but I can tell you, when you're real about going back and the therapist had me like actually write a letter to some of the people that I couldn't actually confront about forgiving and making amends and those types of things and it was it was that kind of action that actually helped me to release the the pain and the hurt and the resentment because it's hard to go forward when you can't take steps because of your weight that's so heavy. It's it's hard to explain in actual words until you experience it and you go through the fact that forgiving is so beneficial to the person who's doing the forgiving because we're the ones that carry the weight. There's so many times that people have hurt you in life that they have no clue that they hurt you in life. But because of the fear of confrontation and going to that person and expressing the the fact that they hurt you so deeply mentally or physically or emotionally you're the one that carries that around and until you can actually forgive that person you'll continue to carry it around you know if we want god to forgive us for our transgressions we have to to no doubt forgive those who transgressed against us. And yourself as well. Absolutely. It's, just, it's imperative. I mean, you can't... That's where it all starts. That's where the grace and the freedom begins, you know, is when you can, can actually do that. Um, I don't know if I'm the qualified to put all that into words correctly, but that's just the best way I can express it. And you've done it very well. I want to ask you about a time, and, and this might be difficult for you, that moment when Sandy, for the first time, walks out of the house and goes lives with her mom, and you're in the floor mm. crying out to the Lord, and you felt something change. Did it? Or, or were you just about checking off the boxes at some point in time in your life, that if I do this, if I do this, if I do this, and I act this way, and I do all these things, 
I'll get back what I just lost. No. But that was real. That was so real. That's like a new birth. You know, when I was reborn, you don't forget that. Um, you know, listen, I had some knowledge and head of Christ when I would go with her at times to that Pentecostal church. And I mean, it's preaching you hellfire damnation and you got to be saved or you know what I mean? You you under you you get it to a point, but you don't feel it. I got I had it in my head, but I never had it in my heart. A few days after she had, you know, walked out and I got to watch her walk across the through the window, that was a tough time. And um I struggled with that really hard and I can remember, man, my my anger and my resentment for her doing that, for walking out on me was unbelievable. I mean unbelievable. And I felt like I had no other choice. I had no other where to go. I felt like that's I was at the very bottom. And I felt like if I don't get on my knees and give this to God and, and just say, please do something with me, you know, and ask him to forgive me, which is where I started for being such an ass. I didn't know anywhere else to go. You know, I didn't have anybody else to confide in, to talk to, to reach out to, anything like that. I reached out to somebody that I never knew that I thought wouldn't hold nothing against me so to speak, you know what I mean? And it's like when I cried out to God to do something with me, it just seemed like he heard me because I could just feel this this sense about all this weight and all this guilt and all this stuff that I was dealing with. I couldn't feel it anymore. And when I got up off of that floor, I just felt so so much peace inside that I had no explanation for it other than God God reached down and touched me at that moment and extended grace to me I had never felt anything like that in my life I knew in my heart that that was real this was not just a game I was playing I'll never forget that but you eventually said but the story continues mm. You have this impactful moment on a floor with you and God, yet the story wasn't over. This happens again, essentially. Is there some sense of false illusion, particularly in the Christian faith, that if I just do these things, I say these words, and you know what? Tomorrow's a brand new day, and this is all over with. What's the journey really like, particularly when you're talking to people out there who's Right now, thinking, that's my story, and what am I going to do next? I don't know how to say it, but um, to me, it's just like another choice you have to make in life. You know, I'm going to choose to walk with the Lord. I'm going to choose to let him fight my battles because of all the fighting that I've done. I wasn't really good at it, (laughs) so to speak. And when I watch how he works in my life and I allow him to work in my life, because it is a free will, 
And it is a choice that I have to make to either step back and let God or push God to the side and let Jim. I finally chose to step out of the way and let God because I see the results in a totally different way. I see how he works things out that there's no other explanation. There's no other possible way that things could turn out the way they turn out other than it's God. And I've seen so much of that in my life. Even when I first got saved and was everything was doing really good up to the point where I, so to speak, fell off the wagon when I allowed situations in my life. And I said again, like I allowed those situations to overcome me to where I fell back to my old habits and my old ways and tried to self-medicate Jim. And I saw how that didn't work. And I saw how that messed up everything. I saw, I saw all that, you know, and I also saw how God does everything when I allow him to take care of the reins, let him be the driver, so to speak, and I be the co-pilot or however you want to put it. Mm. So I've seen the results and I've experienced them. I've lived them. There's nobody out there that can tell me otherwise. You know, I believe. And that's just how I want it to be done now. You know what I mean? It's just that's that's the way I want to see things happen. I'd rather see God in charge and Jim be the, the, the co-charge guy, you know what I mean, so to speak. Like, I don't have the last word. Mm-hmm. I, I'd rather have God have the last word. I've seen his results. They're way better than mine. I've seen what he's done in my my wife and my kids and our relationships, the mending that he has done. There's no way that Jim could have done that. It's impossible. There's no way. And there's no other explanation for that. People can say, oh, that, you know, that that's just a hoax. It's just, you know, this, that, or the other. But I know it's real. Mm-hmm. I know it's real in my heart. Mm-hmm. And I don't have a problem sharing that with anybody. So here's here's another thing as we kind of wind this up is, is that some people would say is that Jim you got to that place because everything else was taken from you so you know if those things were still available if Sandy didn't walk away the first time if you didn't get caught by the team of folks that walk in and says here here's your cocaine we know it exists that you'd still be doing it so is this more than just about getting caught and having things taken away did you really feel that God was moving you to that place in the fr- anyway and that yes, you were going to reach this combination absolutely, irregardless? Absolutely. Because it couldn't go on. No. My will was fighting that big time. I, I could feel it. You know, I know God can do his best work when you finally get to your bottom and you've got no other choice. Excellent. Okay. You know, I've experienced it twice. I don't want to experience it a third time, mm. <laughs> so to speak. Don't want to have to go down that road again. So this time I'm trying to be way more diligent, way more um, intent. I mean, uh, intent, you know, with my, what I do with, you know, with my study and my walk with the Lord. Uh, it's just a big part of my life today, like it wasn't before, you know. So I'm just thankful. I'm grateful. Yep. And I've seen what God's done in my life, Amen. and I've seen what God's allowed me to share with other people already from the the impact I might have had, you know, with somebody else. I mean, he's put people in my path that I would I would have never thought in a million years 
that I would have that kind of an opportunity to share with someone who's struggling with a situation and my past has helped bring God into their life and see a change and a transformation. It's absolutely amazing what God can do when you allow him. I just don't know what else to say about that. Yeah. To close this out, speak to that adult who still thinks back to that young boy who was never given the great context of value, meaning, and purpose in life. Mm. What does he do? Where does he or she go get it now? Yeah, that's a difficult speech to make. But all I can say is there is hope mm. when you think there's no hope. There is a God out there that loves you, that will do amazing things for you, that cares about you. And all you have to do is ask him into your heart, believe in him, and it's absolutely amazing what he can do. When you're serious about it, when, you know, it's, it's, it's a free gift that God gives us. It's not something you can earn. You don't have to do anything like earn brownie points to get anything out of it. It's, it's a free gift of God that we can just choose on our own. You just must receive it. That's it. You just got to receive it. Be willing to receive it. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Jim, when, what comes to my mind after hearing all of this is just uh, where Scripture says that what we man intends for evil, God will intend for good, mm. and that he intends for good all concerning those who love him. And um, I, I, too, wanted to just ask you about those moments where his presence was most realized. You said that it was like a weightlessness. I, I too, have felt like you know, Jesus said that the kingdom of God is all around us, everywhere, and it's always been. It's just that we, we humans, we men, we women, whatever, we have not seen it. But in those moments where we finally grasp a little piece of that kingdom, to me, those experiences have been like two things. A warmth like you can't explain and a weightlessness like you could lift off your feet and float. Does that sound about right? <laughs> it sounds like dead nut, you know, right on the nail, so to speak. Absolutely. It's a, it's a feeling of euphoria that you can't explain. I've never done a drug that made me feel like that, mm -mm. and I've done quite a few of them. Got it. Just about everything on the planet, because I tried everything to make me feel good mm -hmm. or numb what mm -hmm. I didn't want to feel. But... God's kingdom is all around us. There's a Christian rock group that has a song about overcoming drugs, and in it, one of the lyrics is that his love is like wine, and it, but it never ends. Mm. Mm. Um, which just, even that, not having had a substance problem, that line always just, just flew out at me. Mm. And um, when you talk about just those moments of crying out and wanting God to take control. You know, many, most that I've talked to as well, and this I think is true for all three of us in this room too, is, you know, we're always fighting and struggling for control, to get control over something, to take something we know is out of control, but, you know, we can, we can, we can get it. We can fix it. I can control it. 
No, you can't. Mm. And when measuring that, do you really want to be in control when the one who controls the motion of the stars could be in control? Yeah, you know, that's another tough question. I think every guy wants to be in control of his own destiny, so to speak. But that's a that's a real tricky thing that control. Yeah. You know, we have a tendency to over control, and I know I do. I have a, con- a a big tendency to mess things up because I want too much control. Mm-hmm. We were not made to be like puppets, and and we can't force people to act like puppets. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a perfect scenario where if I want everybody to act like I want them to act, so that everything I do is good and okay, you know, and everything. Free will is a great gift. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) But then, you know, I look back and you read about Joseph in the Bible as a little kid, how his brothers sold him into slavery, all the things that man went through, yet God used everything bad that happened to him for good. And in the end, he ended up feeding his family because he was in charge. He was second in command of the whole world. Think about that, yeah. what this guy went through. Yep. And if he can do that for that guy, what he can do for me is just off the chart. And because, and, of, yeah, and because of Joseph's work, you know, the, the world was basically just Egypt and what Egypt controlled at that point. But because of his work, countless thousands, maybe even millions, did not starve to death. Absolutely. So if you want to learn about things, the Bible's got so many stories, so many cool stories of how God uses people that you would never think would be used, just like me. I would never think God could use a guy like me, the stuff that I've done, the things that I've been through, but it's just the opposite. God absolutely wants to use somebody like me to help another God that's like me. You know what I mean? And just to be a part of that is an absolute blessing. I don't know how else to say it. Oh, yeah. There's a... um... I think in one of the greatest pieces of worship ever written, which is in Christ alone, one of the lines near the end is that Jesus commands my destiny. And that release of no longer wanting to control your own destiny, but now he will. Again, the, the one who commanded the stars into place will command the trail of my life. It, it's wild when you understand that that is freedom. <laughs> that our own control was slavery, but that is actually freedom to not have to be in control. Absolutely. That's, that's the part that it takes so much to get your head wrapped around that because it just doesn't make sense. Because in our world, you it know? seems backwards. But, yes. But the kingdom of God, you know, I think so much of Jesus's work was just turning the world completely on its head, which is actually the right way up because we actually have it backwards. <laughs> it's Amen. funny. Yep. Amen. So for men who are headstrong and like to be in control, are surrendered to Christ, particularly when it's not working out to our game plan, is not a weakness, it's a strength. Absolutely. When you learn how to surrender your will over to God's will, it's amazing what he can do with that, with you. You, you will do things that you would have never dreamed of. Things will happen that you would you just like got no explanation for, and it's that's that's the part that is just it's hard to explain to people in actual words. You know what? How God does things in your life when you allow Him to. When you give up that will, when you give up that power, 
and watch him work, I I can't count on the toes and hands how many times God has done things in my life that I've prayed about and watched happen and and just it sit back in awe. And you're like, I, I, you're, you're dumbfounded. You all know you, what I mean? You all just, you can you, really say is it's a miracle. <laughs> it is. And I'm telling you right now, God still does miracles every single day. There's no doubt in my mind. Just go looking for them. I am one. Yes. We got one sitting in front of us. Absolutely. Jim, we want to thank you for being a part of Restless, the podcast tonight. Your story is deep, but I see a man in front of me who is tangible evidence to the existence of a God who loves us beyond what we can begin to imagine. Mm. And thank you. And, and I know that you go out there, people ask you to come out to speak to their kids, their son who are struggling, and you've traveled distances to do this. And, and so thank you mm. because you bring to them your lifelong story and the power of that hope of change. Yeah, I think it's, I see it as an absolute honor mm. to be used by God. In any way he seems deemed, you know, he deems suited. You know, I, I I try to take myself out of it and just be there, be that willing vessel, and let God do it because He can do it. I don't have to do it. I just got to be that willing participant. Amen. It's you know we may we may suffer in sometimes in doing God's work. That's the reality of it, but. We know that our suffering doesn't remotely compare to the infinite suffering he endured for our sake. And that even in that seemingly maximal, well, completely maximal suffering that he took on, he worked toward the greatest joy just to be with the children he loved. Mm. And so even in our limited suffering, we were also worked toward that greater joy to be with the Father who loves us. Mm. Amen. Well, guys, I think it's an absolute privilege to be here tonight, and I want to thank you for the opportunity. And we feel doubly privileged that you were here. Mm. Thank you for that honor. Good night. Very good. Thank you for listening to Episode 5 of Restless the Podcast, titled Weightless, featuring Jim. For we here at Restless the Podcast, our hearts are restless to find the one who said, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. For whom is your heart restless? And for today, who can release your heart's burdens? <laughs>